0: Welcome to another episode of The Worthy Physician, podcast for physicians by a physician, combating physician burnout through awareness to reignite passion for medicine. In addition to hearing great pearls, tips, or tricks that you can utilize, you can now also earn CME by reflecting on what you learned from this podcast episode. The link is in the show notes. Hey, thanks, Dr. Shannon, for coming on again. I really appreciate it.
1: Yes, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here.
0: No, I really appreciate your work and just your expertise. You have quite a bit of experience with physician burnout, moral injury, and working with really high achieving women as far as coaching. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And in addition to your writing and your your speaking, it's just a passion of, I think, that we share. So... For the ones that have not listened to you before, can you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Yes, my name is Diane Shannon, and I am a former primary care physician. I trained in internal medicine and burned out during residency, but pushed myself to finish and take my internal medicine boards and practiced for a few years. I pushed through the burnout, but what happened when I was practicing is I kept looking for a setting where I was sure, I wouldn't burn out again, and I did not find one. At the time, this was many years ago, there really wasn't the discussion that's going on today, the awareness of burnout and what it is and how to address it and how to prevent it, really. And so I, at that point, it was a really dark time, a very hard decision, but I chose to leave medicine and went into writing and was a freelance writer for 20 years writing about our healthcare system and health policy and as part of that, I got the courage to tell my story about burning out and leaving practice. And when I did, this was back in 2011 or so, physicians contacted me and said they they didn't know anyone else felt the way they did. Now there's plenty written. You can read lots and lots about burnout, but back then there wasn't as much And it really inspired me to focus on addressing burnout. And so I wrote a book with another physician on how to understand and look at and prevent the system factors that drive burnout, because those really are the key drivers are not the individual, it's the system. And that's how burnout, professional burnout is defined. And and then after that, I thought, I really want to do something. In addition to speaking and advocating for change, I want to do something. And so that led me to training certification, and which was about four years ago. And now I focus specifically on helping women physicians to create lives that actually work. So that's, I love my work today. I'm so inspired by the physicians that I work with.
0: No, that's awesome. And thank you for that, because... In in medicine, the hours that many times we we are expected to put in or we choose to put in can become unbalanced with other aspects of life. And recently you spoke at the Women in Medicine Conference. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Yes, actually just a few weeks ago now. It was a summit in Chicago put on by Women in Medicine, which is now a nonprofit um, organization. And it was incredibly inspiring to be there at the summit, one of my all-time favorite conferences I think I've ever been to. And while I was there, I led a workshop on self-doubt and understanding self-doubt and where it comes from. And I led it once and then repeated it. And it was really a great experience for me. I think the feedback I got was very positive. In that one of the important things to understand about self-doubt is that it comes it can come from internal sources and that's what often is referred to as imposter syndrome. but it can also come from external sources in the form of your environment, especially if there's uh, gender or other forms of bias in your environment. And there's a, there's a great Harvard Business Review article. That's called stop telling women they have imposter syndrome. And so much of what I said is inspired by that and also by an understanding of imposter syndrome. Take on it is that both exist. That imposter syndrome, those feelings of not being good enough, of I'm going to be found out because I don't have the credentials that I think I should, of not being able to accept accolades or achievements and really own them. That does exist. And at the same time, it's really important to discern whether there are elements in your environment that are actually causing self-doubt. So if you are, for example, there's gaslighting going on, which is where someone in a position of power is telling someone else that their experience isn't actually happening. So if I'm experiencing gender bias, and maybe I'm being passed over for promotions And I approach someone and and point that out. And they, oh, oh, no, 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 that's not why you were were passed over. It's all of these other reasons, right? And that keeps happening. You begin to think, well, maybe there is something wrong with me. Maybe I am really not eligible for those positions. When actually there is this, uh, there there may be this element of bias going on in your environment. So we talked about um, gaslighting and what it is, how to recognize it, microaggressions, what they are. Um, And the point being that when you're experiencing something in your environment like that, when the self-doubt is coming externally, that you really need to join with other people. You need allies, you need a mentor, you need that support to really begin to own your own reality and then do something about it. Whereas with imposter syndrome, there's a lot more that you can do internally to address some of those negative messages that are driving the self-doubt.
0: And why, how is that related to burnout, in your opinion?
1: Again, burnout is really fostered and fueled by the system factors. Right. I and mean, in healthcare, we know what those are, right? Yes. It's the productivity pressure, the time pressure, the amount of the workload, the documentation that takes us away from the meaning of medicine. So though that's all true. At the same time, there are places where individual factors or characteristics can exacerbate systems or situations where there's already stress and make them worse. With um, imposter syndrome specifically, one of the characteristics is trying to work extra hard to compensate for those feelings of not being good enough. Of I, I may be an imposter, so I've got to really work extra hard here, and so that can lead to burnout or exhaustion just because of trying to do more and more, and especially if you're in a workplace that is not set up to be reliable or is not. There's all sorts of workarounds, and there's all sorts of extra work piled onto the physician. Then that is a setup for burnout.
0: Sure. And before we started recording, we had talked about how self-doubt can sometimes plague women more than men. Is that what you have? Has that been your experience or is it across the board?
1: What I understand is that at least with imposter syndrome, supposedly it affects both men and women, yet it shows up differently differently. And I can speak just from my experience in terms of working with women physicians. And that is that it tends to show up as in holding back. So if there's a a job posting and it's something that, oh, that would be great. It would just be a step forward allow me to have greater impact where I, in something I care about. And yet I look at the criteria and I say, oh, but I don't have that one criteria. So I'm not going to apply Whereas this is what I've heard for male physicians in that same situation, they may not have a number of the criteria. They'll go ahead and apply. And if they get into that position, that's when the imposter feelings may strike. When they have that position and they're being stretched, may begin to have some of that self-doubt. Whereas for women, it holds them back from even applying for that stretch position. So Again, this is what I have read. My experience is working with women, and I definitely see it in terms of holding back, but also in terms of some of the, the mental strain of continuing to doubt your decisions. So, making a decision, it could be a small decision or an impactful decision, and then wondering, did I make the right decision? And spending a lot of energy and cognitive space on that doubt of oneself and one's decisions.
0: That's a lot of time spent. Yes. That's a lot of time spent. And then you can just go down that rabbit hole indefinitely if we don't pump the brakes on that.
1: Absolutely. Yes.
0: And so what is something that a person could do to address self-doubt? Because it comes up throughout the career. Sometimes we have bad outcomes with patients or maybe the system changes, the culture changes at work. So it it can be exacerbated in addition to all the other, uh, I would say roadblocks that you mentioned before that we know contribute to burnout 100%. What is, what could somebody do when they're going down that rabbit hole of self-doubt?
1: Yeah, I think the first step again is to just do a check and see, is there something in my environment that's driving this? And just to be aware of that. And then if it looks like it's internal, What I asked people to do in the workshop was really think about an an example of when that comes up, when that self-doubt comes up. Either maybe you're thinking about doing a presentation or you're thinking about applying for a position and the self-doubt comes up. What are the specific voices that self-doubt is saying? So getting those out on paper, what are a couple examples of those negative thoughts? And then to say, okay, what is a polar opposite? What is the opposite thought? And it might be based on an actual strength that you know in yourself, or it might just literally be the opposite. And to come up with a couple of those, and then to practice those positive statements over and over again throughout the day until that becomes more the default than that negative thought. I think that can be really helpful. The other thing is a reality check. And when that doubt comes up, it maybe it's, oh my gosh, I never should have been hired for this position. It's, hold on a second. What are my credentials? Why did they hire me? What have I done that would explain the, their trust in me and, and being in this position? And then to look at what have I achieved and really try to hold on to those achievements and see them rather than downplaying them, because that is what tends to happen with imposter syndrome is the positive things happen or the achievements happen. And then very quickly, we move on to, oh, but I have to do this other thing, or I haven't done this or that instance. So I know for myself, when I experienced this in the past, it came up, especially around public speaking. And so for me, it was identifying the thoughts that were coming up, not just when I was actually doing the presentation, but Mm -hmm. even practicing. The presentation, those thoughts would be up. And they were so distracting, they made me less effective at what I was trying to do. So, rooting those out and then having a sense of what might be a more positive frame of mind and trying to hold on to that. And in the beginning, we don't believe those positive statements necessarily. They may feel like it's complete fantasy, right? I am competent. I have what it takes, or that the people in this room want to hear what I have to say in this presentation, whatever the positive might be. But forcing yourself to get into the habit of those positive statements can really make a difference.
0: I appreciate you sharing your vulnerability, you know, getting up in front of and speaking to people can be daunting. And it's a part of your profession that you do now, correct?
1: Yes. Uh, And I actually have grown to like it. Yeah, But I do, I recall I was working with a coach actually, and she said, what are those voices saying? Mm
0: -hmm. And when I
1: had them out on paper, I thought, no wonder I was having so much trouble. There's this constant chatter that was going on in my head that was making me inarticulate at the moment because I was so distracted. So by getting more, uh, putting attention on that and, It was, I was able to let it go and really be more in the present without those distracting thoughts.
0: That's actually really, I appreciate that because it can also translate to, to medicine and how we interact with our colleagues or even the patients. So it's something that can be translated to across the board. And with your other work, I'm a fan of your blog and you just have a, you have a, Great piece about time. Can you go into that? because I thought one of the one of the phrases that I really appreciated when I was reading was that if one area of, is taking up too much of our time, things get off balance. So, can you explain those three areas of time and the meaning behind that?
1: It struck me at one point that basically there are three categories of time. And one is productive time that might be work or it might be at home doing something that feels like you're achieving something or getting a task done. And then there's non productive time that's enriching. So, that's something that builds us up. Um, it's not necessarily creating something, but it builds us up. Either that might be rest, or it might be an activity or hobby that we love, uh, connecting with people. And then there's time that's non-productive and not enriching. And that's my personal example is binging on Netflix, right? And so the idea is that we actually need all three. It's not that we need just productive time and non-productive enriching time, we actually need some of that completely mindless, let me just escape for a while time. What I've seen in physicians is they tend to have productive time and then the non-productive enriching time around the edges, but we're missing that middle category. And I think really having some of all three is important. When you're so tired or when you you feel like you're barely keeping up with the productive time, like the work time, and then when you're home get trying to get the whatever it is, the dishes done or the laundry done or the kids settled, there it feels like there is zero time to do anything that's recharging. And whatever little bits you have, you want to spend doing the distracting time. And that makes sense. Like your bandwidth is really full. The idea is that if you can translate a little bit of that time, either by becoming more effective at work, by delegating, by deleting something that you're doing, saving some time and energy for yourself so that you could have more of that enriching, so that you're getting more of that than just that little bit around the edges of going through Facebook or. Netflix or whatever it is that you do that's distracting, right? So having more of that's really going to refill you for the next day or the next week or to be the person that you want to be at home.
0: No, I appreciate that. I really do. It's just, it's nice to hear the same thought about self-care or time for yourself, maybe in a different way or from somebody else. The more somebody hears that, I think the more it resonates and to have it more mainstream. This is not something that was talked about when I was in medical school or residency.
1: Right. Absolutely not. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's I think I would even say there's a generational gap. I think I've talked to older physicians and this is in the past. And I don't think it was not malicious, but I think it was the difference when okay, you go into medicine and you give everything 100% all the time, where I think with as much as medicine has changed, we have new, there's the EMR and then there are the <laughs> patient satisfaction scores and the different types of care that change You know, every six months, depending on which college you look at. So for, for somebody like me, I have other interests outside of medicine. I have a young family. For me, it's really important to have that time. So this conversation when something like, yeah, I'm tired. Oh, what are you talking about? I do X, Y, and Z, your generation. I just you, you want to get paid, but you don't want to do the work. And I said, no, I think we do want to do the work, but we're figuring out that there's more to life than work. So to hear that from, from every now and then is very appreciative.
1: Absolutely. What you're reminding me of is at one point I was doing some writing on kind of history of medicine. And in the past, early on, residency was male physicians who came and lived at the residency hospital. They were not allowed to be married. They were not, like they didn't have children. They didn't have a spouse. It was 100% your time is ours and you live, you lived at the hospital. And so I think sometimes vestiges of that still linger in thinking this is how you need to train or this is what you need to give up for your profession. And the way I look at it is if you want to have a happy, sustainable career, you have to be a full person. And I do believe that the burdens have shifted and changed and that from my perspective, there are more burdens today. There is more being asked in terms of all of the administrative work that is really not what drew anybody to medicine. Right. right. Nobody wants to go through medical school to be a data entry clerk, right. it's just not what it's about. And yet so much of the time is now devoted to that. So I think things have changed in that way and not, we're not the same society that we were, we're not the same. It's not that anyone is living 100% of their time at the hospital in residency and literally not allowed to get married it's in the past. So we need to catch up we need to accept that the culture has changed
0: and I think the culture is changing just not fast as what we'd like it to but what are some last minute pearls that you would like to leave the listener with because I think we've I've learned a lot I've learned a lot about delegating and just hearing it again to to carve out that time and make sure time is balanced and really find what works for you as an individual and then you, we just touched on the culture of medicine. Right. So we've covered a lot, but what is a message that you would like to leave our listeners with?
1: Yeah, I think it's that if you are feeling like you're treading water and you're having trouble keeping up, that there is hope. And I think so often it feels like there's nothing that can change and therefore it's not going to get better. Like your daily life experience as a physician is not going to get better. And I believe it can. It does take that, like just sticking your head above the water long enough to look around and and maybe carve out a little space and a little energy to be able to focus. And whether that's, I'm going to decide on a way to set agendas with patients more strictly, right? Mm -hmm. That we keep on task, or I'm going to be more careful in my policies about getting double booked or triple booked, right? So there may be places where, there are boundary setting or changes that could you could make that then free up just a little bit more time and energy to do something else. And so just to not give up hope that there's always a possibility of change. And as we continue to get that bandwidth, then we can advocate for the system and practice level changes that will make a big difference for everybody.
0: And if somebody wanted to get a hold of you or reference your writings, read your book, where could we find you?
1: Sure. The best place is my website and you can find my book there and my blog there, or you can email me at diane at dianeshannon.com. My website is dianshannon.com or I am on LinkedIn and fairly active there. So those are the best places to find me.
0: Thank you so much for your time. And as always, I've learned quite a bit. So thank Great. you very much.
1: Yes. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. If you have enjoyed this episode, click, subscribe, share it with a friend because we could all use a little bit of normalizing the topic of burnout knowing that we're not alone.